Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Author Edward Siegel on his new book, Whistle Stop Politics, and Dr. Michael Brant-Zawadzki on mental illness and gun violence in America. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It's Bruce Cook, Sunday night on Angels Radio. My great honor to be with you every week. So, one year until the November election, 2024. This is the... This is the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, the 5th of November, tomorrow the 6th. Where do you stand? What do you think is going to happen? I think anything could happen. While the polls and the pundits are busy saying that it's neck and neck between President Joe Biden on the Democrat side and presumptive candidate Donald Trump, former president on the Republican side, I say one year brings anything could happen absolutely anything ladies and gentlemen don't cast your votes just yet have you wondered if you've watched the news why is california governor gavin newsom traveling the world why is he going to the middle east and having talks amidst all of the chaos why is he going to china and meeting with economic advisors in china why is he going to europe did you ever think that he might be just getting ready to be the, using sports talk here on sports radio, the backup quarterback if something should change with the Joe Biden presidency and candidacy? Do you think that is a possibility? Despite denials from the governor's office that he is not interested in the presidency, he is only interested in running the state of California. On the Republican side, you have a lineup of candidates some of them extremely qualified. Do you think Trump will survive the year? I don't know, and neither do you. But put on your seatbelts because anything could happen in the 12 months to come. The first half of our time together tonight on Angels Radio is about politics, but it's about nostalgic politics, ladies and gentlemen. It's about how things were at one time, not that long ago, for many listening tonight, in your lifetime. For the younger people, this will be an interesting experience. If you're listening to Angels tonight, Angel Radio tonight and me, you will learn something about how things used to be. Before we get there, I want to read something that I found in my notes. A cousin of mine on the East Coast who is a medical doctor and a research scientist with the National Institutes of Health had a friend that was a congressman, and he wrote me this note probably a year ago, which I have used from time to time because it says so much about how, how we have changed as Americans. Our culture has changed. Our psyche has changed when it comes to how we deal with our candidates and our leaders. So listen carefully because this story will resonate. I really believe it will hit home for a lot of people. It's, again, a note from Dr. Harvey Pollard in Maryland to me about a friend of his from the past. Senator John Culver from Iowa was a, quote, bigger-than-life former member of the House of Representatives, and then a senator from Iowa for two terms. He played football for the Harvard football team, and often mentioned his friend Ted Kennedy, who also played on that team, as, quote, left end, end quote. John Culver went on to Harvard Law School, later served in the Marine Corps for two years before returning to Iowa and his life in Congress. John recalled an incident with his father that was indelibly engraved in his mind. The time was during FDR's tenure as president. John Culver's father was editor of the Des Moines Register. 
and an absolutely rabid hater of FDR, as many conservatives were at that time in history, in American history. But FDR came for a visit to Des Moines, and he came on a train, by the way, and you'll find out why that matters in a minute. He came to a visit in Des Moines, and then a motorcade was planned to take him through the city. John, who was about 11 years old at that time, accompanied his father to the stand on the main street of Des Moines to welcome the president to Iowa. As the motorcade swept past, John's father took off his hat, placed it on his head, on his heart, excuse me, on his heart. Stunned, John turned to his father and said, quote, but I thought you hated Roosevelt, end quote. His father replied, quote, yes, but he is the president, end quote. Says a lot, doesn't it, ladies and gentlemen? My first guest tonight on Angels Radio is a distinguished author. He is also a statesman of, of sorts. His name is Edward Siegel, and he's been on the show before. I loved him when he was on before talking about his previous book. He's on tonight talking about his latest book release, which is titled Whistle, Whistle Stop Politics. Guess what? In the days of FDR and before that and even after that, our candidates for president and for other offices traveled the nation on the rails, city by city, town by town, stop by stop, stump by stump. Tonight, Mr. Siegel, who let me share a little bit about his resume besides his talents as a, a writer and historian. He's one of few people who has played and planned a modern whistle-stop campaign tour and has served as a campaign manager, a press secretary, an aide to both Democratic and Republican presidents, as well as congressional candidates. He has written about the history of campaign trains for the Washington Post, uh, Roll Call, Washington Journalistic Review, and the American Political uh, Items Collections. Siegel is an avid collector of political campaign memorabilia, with an emphasis on ballot boxes, 19th century parade torches, 20th century whistle-stop train-related items, and on and on. He joins us now from Northern California, and we welcome him. Edward, how are you? Great to be with you tonight, Bruce. It's my pleasure to have you. This is fascinating stuff. What a difference a few decades makes in the world, in the world of politics, in the world of transportation, in the world of getting the message out to the people. What grabbed you about this whole concept? Well, some things are the same and some things that are different. Um, what simply strikes me as something that never changes in politics are the name-calling, the accusation, uh, the charges, and the back-and-forth between the politicians. What's changed, however, is the formats and how they make those allegations, their charges, their promises uh, to, uh, to voters. Um, it wasn't until uh, 1834, uh, when uh, William Henry Harrison was president, he was the first president to campaign by train. And that was just as the American rail system was uh, becoming uh, viable. And that for more than 185 years, uh, that's how politicians campaign. Sometimes that was the only way that they could rely uh, to get to the voters. Can uh, I interrupt you? I want to know more about William Henry Harrison on the first whistle-stop tour. Do you have an anecdote that you might have uncovered of something that might have happened? The train broke down, it went off the rails, nobody showed. Something interesting I think we would love uh, to hear. I wish I did, but uh, they just did not do as good a job uh, early then as they've done since in documenting those stories and anecdotes. Bad journalism. That's journalism. Well, it was a very short ride because he did not have uh, many miles of track uh, laid. There was not that many places for him to go. How far did uh, they go from Washington on the track? Did it go to the mid? Did it go all the way to Chicago or not even? Well, it was uh, when the first tracks were built, it was probably not more than uh, one or 100 or even 200 miles of track. And it took for decades until the 1858 uh, debate uh, contest between Abraham Lincoln 
uh, when he was running for uh, for Senate against Stephen Douglas in Illinois. And they traveled by train, sometimes together on the same train, uh, going to the different points for the what was known as the Lincoln-Douglas uh, debates. But the more there were tracks that were laid across the country, uh, the more likely it was that uh, politicians, uh, presidents, or, or wannabe presidents uh, were, uh, were turning to the rails to reach as many people as possible, whether was, it was in large cities or small communities. Was that considered de rigueur absolutely necessary? They had to do it. There was no choice. No, for, uh, for many years it was uh, seen as, uh, as uh, not, not, not appropriate for politicians to, uh, to run for office, especially for president. Uh, the presidency was supposed to seek the person. The person was not supposed to actively uh, seek, uh, seek, uh, seek the White House. And it wasn't until 1896 when William Jennings Bryan uh, ran for president, he, he broke that tradition, and he campaigned actively uh, for the presidency and often by train. Edward, so what, what broke, Edward, what broke that tradition for uh, that gentleman? What, what, what in the country happened to change the tune that, I say, take, that, take the president off the so-called pedestal, or, as it were? I think it was the, uh, the ambition to be president. I think uh, that sooner or later, the politicians wanted to be in the White House so much that they would disregard they would they would disregard that uh, convention and they would run actively for it and then it didn't take too long after that for them to become the preferred way uh, and and for politicians to be expected to run for office uh, politicians would make news if they decided not to run for not to use a train the story is told of of a Theodore Roosevelt um, who was campaigning in 1900 and uh, he made it known that he was not going to stop in a small town in uh, in Texas. And the city officials in Texas got so upset that he was not going to come by uh, by train that they passed a law requiring any any candidate even in the area uh, to stop by and at least campaign for a few minutes. So it went from being forbidden to expected, and now it's uh, regarded as kind of like eye candy that the politicians don't need the technology to reach people but it's a great way to help generate interest and attention and to attract the attention of the media. Let me bring it full circle today, if you don't mind. And this is really, pardon the pen, off the rail, but President Biden received tremendous, tremendous criticism, especially from uh, the Republican side of the aisle, for the quote-unquote remaining in his basement during the uh, 26, uh, 2020 campaign. I expect that may happen again. Talk to me about a correlation between what you've just said about the expectation of the president to being out there then and now. How does that, in your view, as a historian, apply to today? Well, I think it's keeping in track with uh, how politicians uh, campaign by train. Sometimes uh, uh, the incumbent president uh, will uh, prefer to campaign from the White House. That's called the Rose Garden strategy, where they do all their politicking and a lot of lot of lot of not a lot of campaigning outside of Washington. Uh, they just stay in the White House and they make their policy pronouncements and they make news there. Um, otherwise, uh, sometimes politicians such as Harry Truman comes to mind. They actively left the White House to campaign uh, for election or re-election. Truman's famous, of course, for his underdog whistle-stop campaign tour in the 1948, uh, where he campaigned for election because he succeeded FDR when FDR died. Uh, and uh, Truman would actually go out and campaign against Congress and call Congress the do-nothing Congress. And he generated a lot of press coverage, a lot of attention, and uh, his campaign tour, which made several of them in 1948, is widely regarded as the reason why he uh, beat his, his Republican opponents. So that was an important part of his strategy. In fact, you mentioned uh, President Biden. He actually campaigned by train in 2020 uh, in uh, in Pennsylvania when he was running for office. So a lot of candidates in the modern era have campaigned by train. You just need a good set of cracks, uh, access to uh, uh, locomotive and uh, configuration, and enough money to rent a train and it's still a great way to campaign for office, whether you're running for president, governor, or sometimes governor, sometimes the Congress, Senate, uh, and even mayor. Would you say it's safe to say 
that a, a contemporary candidate campaigning on a train whistle stop is probably not going to do a national tour on a train, but may do a regional or a local tour that would be more effective, or am I incorrect? No, that makes lots of sense. Uh, when Biden campaigned by train in uh, 2020, it was his Build Back Better tour, uh, and he campaigned in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Barack Obama in 2008, he campaigned in Pennsylvania. He did a bit of a little bit of a longer tour when he won, and his uh, inauguration campaign tour uh, was by train with uh, his vice president-elect uh, Joe Biden. So I'd be surprised if we have a modern-day nationwide campaign tour. They're most likely to be done uh, in a uh, short period of time for a several hours or a several days. That's better to how they had been done in the 20s, 30s, and 40s uh, when train travel, campaign travels would last for uh, days or weeks and cover thousands of miles. Now it's only for a few hours, sometimes a few days, and uh, just a few hundred miles at most. Because our whole world is now sound bites and short, quick stops on every on every level. I'm with Edward Siegel tonight, and we're talking about his new book, Whistle Stop Politics. I'm Bruce Cook. This is Angels Radio. We're going to take our first break, and we have a lot more to talk about. So keep that radio tuned to Angels Radio. I will be right back. Somebody like you Used to be afraid of love And what it might do You got me in love again 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 Again At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute the Hoag Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hoag.org forward slash epilepsy care. It is an honor to talk with you about the Balboa Island Museum on this program. In addition to offering a unique perspective on the colorful history of Newport Beach, the museum conducts numerous events serving the local community, but can't do it without your support. The third annual Balboa Island Fun Zone Festival is coming up November 17th, titled Denim and Diamonds. It'll be at Bun Shindig with a country western band, barbecue, games, and a live auction. Sponsorship opportunities are available and tickets are now on sale. Go to balboaislandmuseum.org for more information. everyone. I'm Bruce Cook. Conversation tonight with Edward Siegel on his new book, Whistle Stop Politics. And we're going backward in time. We're talking about some of the nostalgic ways that our candidates stumped the nation to make their point. I hope you're joining us or just joining us or have been joining us because this is a great bit of history and and uh, so interesting, Mr. Siegel. We really are enjoying your commentary about this book. You talked in the previous segment about the Truman uh, train tour, and I wanted to ask you, that was late 1940s. Air travel existed post-World War II, but I guess it wasn't viable enough to to leave the train behind. Did they? Do you think they considered using planes at that point, or was it just not an option until much later? Well, it wasn't an option uh, because... Uh the, uh, the, way, the way history unfolded is that uh, buses were actually the transition between campaigning by train and campaigning by plane. It wasn't until the mid-1950s where candidates started the transition uh, for, cro- for effective cross-country travel. Uh, they did start to travel by, by, by plane. But uh, some politicians, they were used to campaigning by train, and they, they swore it off for different reasons. Some did not think that campaigning by train was the most effective, efficient way to reach voters. 
um, Republicans in the 1950s uh, said they would prefer to spend the money on trains, and they wanted to spend that money instead on advertising on radio and uh, television, which was uh, coming into its own then. But uh, although Republicans said they'd never campaign by train again, uh, it was like a New Year's resolution. Uh, they uh, they didn't pay too much attention to it in the in the 1950 late late 1950s, early 1960s. Both parties were heavily campaigning by train. And one of the myths of campaign train history is that the golden age of campaigning by train was in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. But I've analyzed more than 200 campaign trips over the last 185 years. And would you believe there were actually more train trips by more politicians in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s than there were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s? So uh, campaigning by train is still popular, uh, still is a preferred way of reaching voters, and certainly using uh, using the trains as eye candy to help attract the media and uh, reach 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 people in a very colorful way. Uh, that had been the preferred way of uh, campaigning by train for uh, for decades. Was it the printed press, the newspapers in the various towns and, and big cities that would rally the people to show up at the train tracks, at the stations, to meet the candidates? Do you have a story or an anecdote about some spectacular city event on a whistle-stop tour with a particular candidate where mobs of people came? Oh, yes. Uh, depending upon the city and the town and the candidate, uh, sometimes tens of thousands, 20, 30, or 40,000 people um, would show up at these, uh, at these train stations. In fact, it was Harry Truman who advised uh, Lyndon Johnson when he was considered running for national office uh, Truman said, based on his own experience, uh, campaigning by training was the way to go. And he said, more people know where the train station is than know where the uh, uh, airport is. And he was a great believer in that. Uh, but uh, sometimes uh, if cities and towns would close uh, when the president or presidential candidate would come to town. Uh, schools would be let out. Uh, there would be front-page stories uh, in advance of the train's arrival. Uh, tell the, the people about the, the schedule and who was going to be there. So uh, it was a major uh, event, and it was uh, became a, you know part of local lore, local history, where people would brag about it for decades later. That President so and so or candidate so and so stopped by and campaigned by train, and uh, people remember the, to this day who are alive, and they just have uh, great memories and great recollections, and they pass out of those stories. Uh, down to their children and grandchildren. What kind of staffing was necessary on these train tours? And did they have to come in advance, or did they all come at once to the to the train station? Uh, most of these train tours uh, would take uh, uh, weeks or months uh, to, to plan properly, especially with the national campaign tours from uh, presidential candidates. They had to uh, uh, line up the best routes. They had to line up uh, the right the train equipment. Uh, they had to give it enough advanced uh, publicity. You just couldn't wake up on a Tuesday and say, well, I'm going to campaign by train, uh, you know, the next day. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of planning. And sometimes it took a lot of money uh, because the uh, railroad uh, companies would charge a lot of a lot of money uh, to, uh, to rent the trains to the candidates. But depending upon the campaign, uh, the reporters would often pay uh, – a substantial amount of that because the candidates required the reporters uh, to pay their fair share. Uh, but some of the railroad companies had problems collecting uh, the fees that were owed to the companies from the politicians. They had much easier time collecting it uh, from um, from the reporters. There you go. That says a lot. Listen, um, did it interrupt commercial travel for the public? Obviously, they put a special train on the tracks for the candidate, but how did it affect the rest of the train travel in those days? Well, it really had a, uh, a negative uh, ripple effect, especially for a presidential travel, um, where the uh, the president's train, which is even then was called POTUS, uh, President of the United States, uh, that was uh, uh, the way to identify the train. And no train was allowed to come within uh, uh, several miles of a president's train. All the other trains coming and going were, uh, were were shut down and could not even pass a presidential train. It took a lot of planning and a lot of effort, 
and especially for what presidential travel was involved, um, a lot of security, where Secret Service um, would uh, uh, have their agents inspect track. In uh, World War II, when FDR was traveling by train, on one trip they had 150,000 uh, soldiers uh, guarding almost every inch of the track to help uh, ensure his security during World War II. So That's a pretty amazing statistic. Yes. It took a lot of time, a lot of effort. In modern day, of course, I remember uh, uh, Michael Dukakis, when he was campaigning the train, they had uh, 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 helicopters hovering overhead. Uh, with presidents traveling, it's incredible the amount of security that's involved and the amount of planning and security uh, that goes into that to protect the president. What was, and perhaps you wrote this in the book, which I haven't, I must admit, I haven't read yet. What was the longest, most expensive, biggest train campaign trip that you talk about in whistle-stop politics? Well, I think there have been very expensive trains. Uh, even when Harry Truman, back in the 40s, was campaigning by train, uh, uh, his campaign trains were costing about uh, 25000 a trip. But if you look at that in 2023 $20, dollars, uh, uh, that, that was certainly a lot of money. Uh, uh, when I think uh, Ronald Reagan uh, campaigned by train just for a, a couple hundred miles uh, in Ohio in 1984, um, and that was hundreds of thousands of dollars. When Bill Clinton campaigned by train uh, on the way to the Chicago Convention in 1996 or so, uh, the, uh, the cost of his train was regarded to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. They tried to fold that cost, however, into the fact that, well, he's a president, so you know, the, these costs are expected. But uh, the, the White House was unable to give an exact figure uh, to the cost of that train trip. But if you tried to do it today, it would be an incredibly expensive proposition. It would cost a lot of time, money, and effort. And, it, you know, you mentioned staff earlier. Uh, depending upon the candidate and how long you were on the road, uh, you'd have dozens or hundreds of campaign aides um, with you on that trip. So it's still a very expensive proposition to do it again today. Edward, you you just said it's probably unlikely, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you think there's any chance that our candidates in 2024 will be on a train at any point? Maybe, a, a, maybe like you said, Pennsylvania only or Iowa only? Yeah, I think the more likely to do it is eye candy. It certainly would be a novel way. Uh, it would be very colorful would generate a lot of attention, and that's what it's all about for candidates uh, to help get elected. They need to get as much attention as they can, and a modern whistle-stop tour uh, in 2024 I think would be a great way uh, to generate uh, attention and uh, to use that train ride as a way to help uh, share their opinions and views, uh, make their charges and allegations to a much uh, wider uh, national audience. If it happens, we're going to give you credit for this. Do you understand that? This is a big deal for you. I'd love for them, one of the candidates to read the book or the campaign aides and campaign manager and say, hey, this is great. Let's do this and let's hire Siegel to help help make this well, happen. Well, guess what? You never know who's listening to radio in America. No. It could happen. Our time is up. I've enjoyed the time with you. Thank you for sharing uh, bits and pieces of this book. We encourage our listening audience to check it out, Whistle Stop Politics. I'm sure it's available on all the book websites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and etc. Edward Siegel, it's been a pleasure. Best of luck with your book. Thanks again, Bruce. I enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Ladies and gentlemen, we move on. We take our commercial break. We come back. So much more to talk about. Do not change this channel. This is The Conversation, live tonight.
Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News & World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute, compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Bruce Cook. Conversation live tonight on Angels Radio AM 830 KLAA. Our country is in a mental health disaster crisis. Sound like an exaggeration, hyperbole, overstatement? Not so much. Our citizens are very, very scared. In cities big and small, horrible things keep happening. And we ask why, and we ask what can we do, and what can our health system do, and what can the government do, and we battle over gun control, and we blame, and we point fingers. And meanwhile, a week ago, in the town voted most safe in America, a gunman with severe mental problems murdered 13 people and wounded another 18 people, and we ask why. And tonight, I've asked my very, very, very good friend and expert on radio, Dr. Michael Brent Zawatsky from Hogue Hospital here in Orange County, to join us. He is an expert in the field of neurology. He's a Stanford graduate, University of Cincinnati Medical School. He lectures still as an adjunct professor at Stanford, his field is in neurological radiology and related sciences, and he is the executive director, medical director at Hogue Hospital for the Ron and Sandy Simon Chair. He comes on the show occasionally and gives us great insight, and we have a tough subject tonight because it's something that everybody listening tonight is worried about. They're worried about in their own neighborhood. They're worried about their own family. They're worried about the country. Dr. Michael Please join me. Always a pleasure and privilege to be with you, Bruce. No, it's definitely our it's our pleasure and our privilege, and everybody listening in Orange County, Los Angeles, wherever you are listening, don't leave this half hour with Dr. Brent Zawatsky because this is something we all need to face. Uh, comments from you on that particular tragedy in Maine as a neurologist as a as a doctor of medicine and dealing with depression and and psychiatric matters what say you well first correct the record i am uh, not a neurologist i'm a neuroradiologist but i do oversee the neurosciences institute which is a uh, gathering of psychiatrists neurologists neurosurgeons pain medicine and addiction medicine specialists so i do um, I slept in a quality in last night, as they say, on, uh, on radio. So I do have a, a number of interesting uh, points to make about that one event. Uh, first of all, um, I would also give credit to the Columbia uh, University uh, Psychiatric Department, where they've compiled a um, significant database, the largest catalog of mass shootings and mass murders in the world from 1900 through 2020, about 1,800 entries. 
And the vast majority of mass shootings and mass murders are committed by people without mental illness, and certainly not psychotic illness. And when a person with severe mental illness commits a mass murder, they're much less likely to use firearms than other methods. Well, this is a very important point, because I think we're all afraid that everybody needs to be committed to a mental hospital. Well, I think that's a separate adjacency, if you will, um, as to when someone should be committed to an institution is a topic of hot, hot debate. As you know, Governor Newsom just recently proposed that people should be uh, incarcerated, if you will, in a, in a mental institution against their will, which goes directly against the late 60s directive uh, because of human rights and, and independent uh, uh, factors, uh, uh, we we should not do that. But uh, the pendulum is swinging backwards, actually. I think in California, the homeless crisis and some of the um, tremendous uh, fear of the homeless, particularly given uh, the visual that goes with that every night on the news. I want to get back uh, to that, but I took you off track. Go back to uh, to the main situation. You were about to make a comment on it. Well, so yeah, so this was an individual actually with mental illness documenting in his past. So yes, there are uh, there are uh, associations between mental illness and uh, mass murders and, and um, mass shootings. So that's not to be denied. But the, the vast majority of mentally ill individuals are not violent and do not commit atrocities such as murders and, and uh, mass uh, mass shootings, right? Um, mass murder committed with means other than firearms, by the way, such as bombing, arson, vehicles, even stabbings, is about two and a half times more deadly than mass murders committed with firearms. Another so, great uh, point. Say it again. Well, according again to the, uh, to the Columbia database, which is the most uh, robust there is, mass murder committed with bombings, arsons, vehicles, and stabbings is two and a half times more deadly. Uh, that said, mass shootings with firearms have gone up significantly, quadrupled uh, between uh, the period 1900 to 1990 versus 1990 till now because of the availability, increasing availability of weapons. So uh, it's not to discount the fact that uh, weapons uh, are not a major factor or the dispersal of weapons throughout society are not a major factor in mass shootings, they certainly are. That said, it's easier to kill many people with a bombing or, or a fire uh, and mow down people with vehicles in terms of, again, the uh, deadliness of, of the act uh, versus a firearm. Let me, weapons <clears throat> let are, me interrupt are, you. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. I, I need a, a statistical uh, question also. In that period, 1900 to 1990, the population has also quadrupled. So can I ask you, is it fair to ask you, given the population increase, has the number of shootings per capita also quadrupled, or is it more more similar and likely than it always was? Well, so great question, Bruce, and you, you are uh, you're statistically minded. So the statistic I gave you, comes down to a per billion of people. So about seven per billion people, seven mass shootings for every billion people between 1900 and 1970. Then between 1970 and 2019, 28 times per billion people. So, so it's a benchmark against a billion people. Okay, good. We needed that information. Yeah. Good. So the incidence has clearly quadrupled uh, since 1970 per billion people. Uh, that's, yes, availability of gun in general and guns in general, automatic weapons, especially in the U.S., where they've become more available uh, to the population. That's, that's certainly a factor. But most mass shootings, interestingly, are committed with non-automatic weapons. And a surprising number of people, 30% or so, who do uh, uh, cause mass shootings uh, kill themselves as the, with that same weapon uh, and or another 15 or so, 20% uh, get uh, it's, it's, that's by cop, suicide by cop. 
So you know, these folks may be acutely suicidal, uh, but that doesn't mean that they've had psychotic mental illness. In fact, the average, the average uh, uh, mass shooter is a middle-aged guy, man, uh, responding to a severe and acute stressor. You know, they're not planned, makes them very difficult to prevent. It's, they got fired, they have uh, their, their girlfriend, their wife, committed uh, an act they despise. Uh, so um, it's, it's a trigger, if you will. It's not related to pre-existing mental illness with a lot of planning. Got it. So that's a, another important statistic. And finally, Bruce, it's interesting to note, only about 8% of mass shooters are women. But in that case, in women, there is a strong association with mental illness uh, and, and the mass murder that, that's committed. The perfect example being women who drown five of their kids, that would be in that database. More than three people is considered a mass murder, uh, mass perpetration, if you will, mass killing. So a woman drives to her car with four kids into the lake, and, and she's in the throes of postpartum depression, clearly a, a mental disorder. Going back to the main situation, I want to ask you a hypothetical question. The shooter did take his own life after committing the atrocity, as you just described as a common thing that happens. As a neuroradiologist and as a doctor in charge of the department at Hogue Hospital, if he had not committed suicide, if this man had been apprehended by the police and had lived— how should he have been treated? How would he be treated by the legal system? And how would society react to that treatment or that court justice, for lack of a better word? Because I think most people in a moment of disgust and anger would say, why didn't he just kill himself? That sounds horrible to say, but it's real. Well, uh, that was a complex question. So, um, had he not um, had he not died by suicide and or by cop, uh, he would have been arrested. Uh, his mental status would have been uh, evaluated by experts, and based on whether or not he had competence at the time, sounds like he did not. From everything we've read, right? And there's clearly a, uh, evidence he had been hospitalized recently. In fact prior to the mass shooting, so everybody's questioning why should how did that someone like that get guns? But he was a he had a he had a background of having served in the military. In fact I believe he trained other people how to use guns. Yeah, that was his profession. So, it was his job. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So everyone's questioning why weren't his guns taken away after he was clearly uh, treated for for a men, uh, significant mental illness sufficiently to be hospitalized. So coming back to your question, how would he have been treated once it had, was established that he truly had a severe mental health disorder and therefore well, would not be eligible for, uh, certainly for the death penalty or a premeditated murder because people with incapacity do not premeditate. Um, so he would have been confined uh, to a... Uh, uh, to, he would have been incarcerated in, in a uh, facility um, that's specifically designed for violent uh, psychotic individuals. So bars and the whole bit, but in a mental health uh, prison ward rather than a, a conventional prison. Dr. Michael, we have to take our break. I want to ask you a follow-up question to think about when we come back. Actually, a two-parter. If you had been an expert witness called to testify, how would you have handled it under what you know? And secondly, what would you say as a medical doctor with a specialty in the brain to those that say, execute him? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. It's the conversation tonight with Dr. Michael Brant-Zawatsky from Hogue Hospital here in Orange County. We will be right back. Come fill me again Come let me love you Let me give my life to you Let me drown in your laughter 
Let me die in your arms Let me lay down beside you Let me always be with you Come let me love you Come love me As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949-537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash It is an honor to talk with you about the Balboa Island Museum on this program. In addition to offering a unique perspective on the colorful history of Newport Beach, the museum conducts numerous events serving the local community, but can't do it without your support. The third annual Balboa Island Fun Zone Festival is coming up November 17th, titled Denim and Diamonds. It'll be at Bun Shindig with a country western band, barbecue, games, and a live auction. Sponsorship opportunities are available and tickets are now on sale. Go to balboaislandmuseum.org for more information. And we're back, everyone. As the world does need love, that is for sure. We're talking about dealing with a lack of love, a lack of a lack of self-love, and mental depression, mental issues, as well as societal issues tonight. My very special guest, Dr. Michael Brandt-Zawatsky, executive physician director at Hogue Hospital, Orange County. And we are back. I asked him a couple tough questions to mull over over the break, uh, referring to the tragedy in Maine. And the first question was, Dr. Michael, if you had been called as an expert witness, assuming there would be a trial and that the shooter had lived, what would you say? What would be your point of view? Well, I'm being presumptive here, Bruce, because I'm not an expert witness. Uh, well, the question was really setting. presumptive. <laughs> it was not a yeah, very fair question, but, but I, give it a yeah, try. I, I will. I will. So I'm not a psychiatrist, right, or a forensic psychiatrist. I have colleagues who are, and uh, the easy answer here is this person was well-documented to have a significant mental illness, being hospitalized for that shortly before uh, this hor- horrific act. So as an expert witness, you'd point to that and say, clearly, this is the um, minority of cases, as I said. This is one of the minority of cases where a mental illness triggered this person and caused him to to commit mayhem and and murder 13 people and and severely injure 18 others. So there would be, I would, from everything we've read, uh, any psychiatrist on the stand would say this is uh, the result of a mental illness, unfortunately, in this particular case. The tragedy, I'm sorry, the tragedy of it all is that the survivors of the wounds, the survivors of the families of the lost that died, they will live on with this for their entire lives. In the public, the news cycle changes daily. And next week, the week after, forgotten there's a large a large population in this country who are fed up what do you say as a scientist as a a specialist in the mind in the in the in the medicine of the mind to those that say execute him well so Bruce, as a society we've moved well beyond the biblical days of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are you sure about that are you sure i'm not so sure well so as a society i said maybe not in a war climate like gaza's 
that's uh, happening right now. But uh, from I mean, just think about the fact that we haven't we've abolished uh, the death penalty uh, in the vast majority of instances. Certainly in California, the society the pendulum has swung against that, and uh, and executing someone, particularly someone who's so mentally impaired that they didn't know what they were logically didn't know what they were doing. Uh, we didn't we didn't execute Charlie Manson or any of his uh, acolytes. Uh, I mean, I can go the young kid that just slowed down four young girls on on uh, Coast Highway in Malibu. He's not going to be executed, even though what we hear if he was recklessly driving, and certainly he will spend a significant portion of his life incarcerated for not just manslaughter, but but uh, probably second degree murder. I can't. I'm not a lawyer, so I I can't say. But no one would, I think, try to say he should be executed because of that fatal accident, which would be counted as a mass murder. Right, um, four people being killed at once. So execution is 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 a uh, is, is is a last resort that we reserve for the most heinous of crimes uh, perpetrated uh, in some states. And I might add by by a vicious person with uh, no human values, no human values that could be considered. Uh, uh, a, Allowing him to that or her, for that matter, to live. Uh, so it, it's it, it, we just don't, as a society, have moved past execution. I think for someone like this, and and yes, he committed a horrible, uh, heinous act, and so many people would have been and will continue to be devastated by it. But does that excuse like murdering him? Uh, given the circumstances, I, I think as, as an ethical question, as a moral question, and even as a political question, I think we're well beyond that. I certainly hope so, because it seems like the world has become more barbaric in our contemporary lifetime. We don't have any more time, and we have so much more to say. Uh, I would like to ask you to come back in a couple weeks, or certainly by December. The end of the year is a time for a lot of people where depression sets in. It's a difficult time for some reason. I don't know if it's just cultural. Perhaps it is uh, also a medical fact. Will you come back so we can talk about that in our next session, Doctor? Absolutely. We're in the throes of seasonal affective disorder, as it's known uh, as of the change of the clock uh, Sunday night. So happy to talk about the effects of that uh, on mental health and other things as well. You know, I feel that today with the change of the clock. I've had a very weird day today, and I, I... There you go. Listen, I appreciate your comments tonight. It was a tough show. I asked some really tough and slightly ridiculous questions, but I appreciate your tackling them. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. I say goodnight to Dr. Michael Brandt-Zawatsky of Hogue Hospital. I say goodnight to Edward Siegel, our first guest on the show, and I wish you all a healthy and happy week. Here in America, I'll be back on Angels Radio Sunday nights at 6 o'clock. You've been listening to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear the Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.